Welcome to the Seafood Matters podcast, a voice for the UK fishing industry. I'm your host, Jim Cowie. Having over 60 years hands-on experience in the seafood industry, I've owned fishing boats, processed and exported fish, and auctioned fish on numerous fish markets. Over the last 20 years, I've been the owner, chef, of the highly awarded Captain's Galley Seafood Restaurant in Scrabster in the far north of Scotland. Now it's time to introduce you to fishermen, seafood chefs, fishery scientists and industry leaders that I have worked with along the way. Franz Schurer, welcome to Seafood Matters podcast. Uh, I'm delighted that you agreed to join us. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your career and your past, how you, where you started and how you got where you are now? Oh, how much time do you have? Let me give you an abridged version. I was born in Switzerland and traveled the world for a few years as a photojournalist and eventually came to Australia in 1973. And um, I started as a counter champer in a photographic shop because no one wanted to employ a photographer, which is my trade. And... Um, it took me about three years to become manager of the shop and then I realized that by that time I could actually start my own business and I started my own advertising agency. So I've basically been independent and working for myself for somewhere around, oh God, 50 years. (laughs) And um, I suppose We have a multiple selection of strands here because A, yes, I'm a photographer. B, yes, I run an ad agency. C, yes, I'm into food, uh, writing uh, reviews, etc. for different magazines. And I am also an avid collector of things like motorbikes and um, boots. So... What and watches, that's correct. So, what do you want to know? I'm just interested in any of it because it's a very interesting past. Well, it was look, I've lived three lifetimes already, and if I shuffle off my mortal coil tomorrow, I won't be sorry for anything I've ever done. Well, you're a bit to go yet, so don't be despaired, because as we always say over here, a cat has nine lives. Yeah, you know, I do find that the older I get, the less I can do things that I used to do. And although it doesn't bother me greatly, it does slow me down, whether I like it or not. But if I could put that to you, Franz, in a different context, there's a guy I'm friendly with here <clears throat> who is very, he's a very good footballer. Now, he's in his late 40s, almost turned 50. And I said to him, Ken, you can't keep playing football forever. And he says, look, he says, 
the way that guy is, he says, the way that young kids just run around, he says, I just need to maybe make one or two passes. So he, he says, I don't need to keep running around like the, like the children. So that's the old head. He doesn't need to do one good pass as equivalent to somebody that's not so knowledgeable eh, running around the football field forever. Uh, look, there's no doubt. I mean, in reality, you cannot, exp- you cannot replace experience. It is simply not possible. Um, yeah, today's generations think that they should get instant gratification and everything should fall into a lap and there's no work to be done. Well, sorry, guys, I've got news for you. There's a lifetime of work ahead of you. And if you're lucky... And if you choose the right path, and if you have the right attitude, you will eventually get recognition. But it takes a bloody long time. That's very true. This is wise words. Franz, when you, you mentioned the journalist and uh, journalism and stuff like that, uh, is that what took you into Australia Gourmet Pages? Uh, yes and no. Look, I, I left Switzerland in 1967 for my first real assignment overseas, and I then spent six and a half years in the Middle East as a war co- correspondent and um, seen about 10,000 things a human should never see. But after that, once I realized I was mortal, I got the hell out of there, and um, I put in to South Africa, Brazil, and Australia to emigrate because the last place I wanted to be in was Switzerland where I grew up. In Switzerland you stand in front of a building and you look at it and you can tell which floor and in what position you'll be at 60 because the only thing that counts is seniority and that was not for me. So I waited for an answer and I got an answer from Australia that said yeah you can come, it won't help you, no assisted passage or anything but yeah you can come. So I did. And I had every intention to keep on traveling, but Sydney captured me and um, I loved every minute of it, so I stayed. Okay. And is that where Australia Gourmet Pages uh, no, was born? much, much later. I worked as a professional photographer for quite a long time. I really only started the Australian Gourmet Pages in 1998 because I couldn't stand the fact that the Sydney Morning Herald had a total monopoly on restaurant reviews and everyone was kowtowing to them. And being a newspaper, of course, a lot of decisions were made on shock value reality. And what I wanted to do is give them an alternative. So I started the Australian Gourmet Pages, which did restaurant reviews and at the restaurant of the year. And it did basically all the things that the Sydney Morning Herald's Guide did. But it was my opinion, which very often and almost always differed quite drastically from the commercialism of the paper. And I kept that up until COVID hit in, uh, in about two and a half years ago. And um, I um, 
attracted a very large following with it. And once COVID hit, um, everyone was hell-bent on trying to survive, let alone um, be judged or anything that was just not right. So that's when I closed the strain on my pages. But I, I do think I took it very far. Oh, I, I know I know that, Franz, because even I remember Anthony, our youngest boy out there, when he worked in Benelong restaurant, I think that's when he got to know you first. That's and, correct. And my goodness, when Franz Schurer was in for a meal, they jumped. <laughs> they jumped the, through the hoops. The funny thing is, you know, <clears throat> when I went to a restaurant and I ate the meal, I was never even half as interested in what I was getting. I was far more interested in the four or five tables around me than I could see and noticed what they were getting or not getting because that gives you a far better idea. I know some chefs have cooked certain dishes for me three times and sent out the best one and that does actually not impress me. What does is when the waitstaff goes out of their way and serves something that they know is perfect and serve it to a table next to me and that's when they shine and that's when they got good points from me okay it's so you're a wee bit uh, cleverer than I, I remember when we had the captain's galley and mary was uh, my wife was in front of the house in charge she would come in someday into the kitchen and say be careful with say, table four, a single guy, a notebook, asking lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a giveaway, isn't it? Yeah, so <laughs> so it sounds as if you were just a bit clever. I mean, you, you were so well known latterly, probably every restaurant you went into knew you. I don't know how many chefs have told me since I've retired the gourmet pages, just how many of them had a photo of me in the kitchen. So I couldn't <laughs> go undetected. <laughs> well, that's a, that, says, that says a lot about you then, because they were obviously... <laughs> I know that they, in this country, there's a, the chefs, well, I'm not, I better not say, I know, but I know it was the case and uh, that a lot of chefs would have a list of the names of different inspectors and they would tally up every now and again, have you got so-and-so, have you got Robert Smith or, you know, any name like that? No, that's not on my list. Oh, well, he's with AA or Michelin. Or... <laughs> of course. Look, I mean, the, the game can be played from all sides. Um, interestingly, though, um, the Sydney Morning Herald was very much on the side of action, of shock value, of getting things noticed, of being read, of course, and bought. I was on the side of the restaurateur because I know how fucking hard the restaurant guy, the restaurant trait is 
it's not just hard, it is incredibly hard. And if you can manage to bring out a dish that is A, perfect, B, to what you want it to be, C, in a timely matter, and lastly, delivered by a service person who gives a crap, who actually smiles and explains the dish without interrupting your conversation and being, you know, the, hold on, everyone stop, I've got something to say. That's not the right way. What is the right way is to bring it, leave it there, and explain it when it's timely. And if they can do that, they've already won 10 points because that's the hardest part. Yeah, that's so true. Is there anybody doing it replaced? Is it been replaced with anybody now or is it just back to the Sydney Morning Herald? No, look, these days it's totally, the whole landscape has changed because now you have 10,001 bloggers and they all think that they know food and they all think they have a right to an opinion, which they have, but they have very little knowledge. They've never been in a commercial kitchen. They really don't generally have the money to actually eat out enough to, to um, draw any comparisons. Um, they give you an opinion. And if you happen to give them the meal for free, it's going to be a much better opinion. I'm sorry, but that actually gets my back up because yeah. a real reviewer pays for his meal he goes away, he's not known, and he will give an opinion that is as fair as it is humanly possible. Bloggers are never fair. There is no such thing. It's a personal opinion that is unfortunately colored by who pays the bill. And today, bloggers expect everything for free. And unfortunately, the restaurant trade has largely given in and give so-called so influencers the benefit of the doubt. It's, oh, look, it's going to cost us 50 bucks in ingredients. Let's give them the bloody meal and hope for a good review. But I'm sorry, that's not the way to do it. No. I remember one of the early, first times I was out after Anthony moved to Australia, I, and he was in uh, Benelong, and I was there for a meal, and I met Guillaume. Yeah. And I, I, one of the things that really interested me, Franz, was when I says to him, I says, "Look, I says, it's what I'm what I'm amazed about in Sydney is the culture, the eating out and food culture." And I says, we just do not have that in Scotland, maybe London, but other than that, almost nowhere in the UK. And he says, interestingly, he says, well, don't think so much about it, Jim, because it's only relative here since about the last 15 years. Uh, that's very true. And don't forget, where you have the captain's galley, it's the middle of bloody nowhere. And of course, you don't have a lot of locals eating there regularly, but you would have hopefully had a lot of tourists. Now, 
London is a different kettle of fish because people do eat out. But I do think Australia has that very, we must, we just must have the latest meal, the latest, the greatest, the latest opening. We have to go and see it. They, they're not happy until they've been to the very latest opening. They don't care if that latest opening closes two months later because they never go back. The trouble yeah. here is not attracting clients. The trouble here in Australia is to keep them coming back. And there's very few restaurants who succeed, and the ones who succeed are stayers. Yeah, yeah. And they're probably the most able and good at it. And that's why the people go back. Look, actually, I have to disagree on this one because Yanni Kiritsis, who is, in my opinion, one of Australia's best chefs ever, once told me, if you go to a restaurant with absolutely top quality meal and you have shitty service, you don't go back. If you go to a restaurant that has average food, but the best service in the world, you will go back. And that is one of the secrets that a lot of restaurateurs have not cottoned onto. This is not just about food. In the end, the front of house is at least as important as the kitchen. If you can't deliver it with a smile and give informed decisions and tell the customer what will work with what, then I'm afraid you've missed the boat. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that 100%. And uh, I, I used to put it in a different way, but uh, I used to say food, the food, yes, it's got to be good and okay, but it was a bit, I, was, I would say food 40 to 45%, front of house 55 to 60%. Agreed. And uh, I think we were the fact that uh, what we used to, I used to say to people, regulars in the captain's galley, uh, hopefully you'll have a nice experience and you'll enjoy your meal and it'll be, the food will be, but be good. But if it's not just right up there to your high expectations, he says, I said, what the one thing I do I am able to guarantee is you will be nursed and mothered. <laughs> that, is, that is the secret. No yeah. doubt. Yeah, because Mary was a, a good nurse, a good mother, and she just, she was a people's person, and or is a people's person, and she just took it to the project. Yeah. Look, when I was there, what you served me was fabulous, but it was not just that. It was the whole atmosphere, the whole around it, explanations of the dish, the way you served, always with a smile, always informed. It was a pretty perfect experience. That's why I named Captain's Galley as my number one restaurant in Scotland. And I still stand by that, even though I have not gone back since you left. 
Oh, that's nice to hear. Well, I, th I think it'd be probably just, it'd be up there as good because the guy, Jody, it's taking it over. He's a very, he's a, he's a real talent. And like what you've been saying there, Franz, about the, obviously knowing the industry, what I like to, when I've been in, when they've been working, uh, what impresses me about Jody, apart from uh, there's a nice, a lovely meal going out to the customer, it's just seeing his organization about the kitchen. Right. <clears throat> I tell really. you. I tell you something funny because that's something. You know, guess where my number one restaurant in the world is? <laughs> <laughs> it'll be some, it'll be some way, way out corner and. <laughs> well, it's it's in Wales. There's a place called Innis here, in Wales, and the food, the service. The, home, the place, and you always stay there overnight. It's a hotel with rooms, is so far ahead of anything else in the world. It is just not funny. I've eaten in most three star restaurants around the world, and Inisia is incredible. So you are close enough. So get on your bike and try it, <laughs> and say hi to Grant. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good day. <clears throat> so you're still giving reviews. <laughs> well, I, I still write about places that really, really um, move me. Um, not much else. But, you know, there's also one advantage with having spent almost 50 years with chefs of all caliber means they've all become friends because the one thing I always did is I've been honest. I've given an honest review and I've never embellished it and I've never put anything down. I've always told it as it was. And that's the one thing that all the chefs that are, are all friends have appreciated. And it also means that it actually now helps Roberta Mule's business of being inspired because we have no problems getting the cooperation of any of the chefs. And that's in itself is practice. I commend her, Franz, a just going back to when the times have been in Sydney myself and seen the list of chefs that she would have uh, down there in the Sydney Seafood School it just never ceased to just amaze me and think how what a great what a great talent and a uh, personality to be able to do what she did there know that and her new business is even better because she can now do exactly what she wants. So, um, kudos to her. And I think she's got an absolute cracker, cracking name, Be Inspired, because she's so inspirational herself, her personality. Uh, look, I, 
Even though I've been married to her for 23 years, I have no hesitation in totally endorsing that. Yes, indeed. Franz, I could go on to you about this subject all day, but what I would like to take it forward to now is uh, your photography. That yep. fascinates me because I I know that in my time, it's, I class myself as being in the fishing industry all my life, although the last 20 odd years was in the hospitality. Uh, and food photography, that's a real skill and art. <laughs> Look, photography is an art, period. But unless you know all the techniques and know all the theory and know everything there is to know about the history, etc., you are basically not going to be allowed to break the rules. Because until you do, you are learning. And frankly, you're probably learning all your life. I'm still learning after 60 years of being a photographer. And food is one particular area I particularly like. Because food, it's not about the rendition of a perfectly clear an in-focus shot. It's about the fact that when you look at it, you want to eat that. Now, if you don't achieve that, you have not succeeded. So my take on food photography is, yeah, let all the stylists do what they want. Let all the lighting guys do what they want. But in the end, it's where I put the focus and how I highlight which particular part of the image is going to be the hero. That's what wins. And I have to say very few food photographers get that right. They think as long as it's in focus, as long as it's well exposed, as long as the color's accurate, they've done their job. But I'm sorry, they haven't. It goes a lot further than that. There must be a lot of it in the eye, the, the photographer's eye. You can learn how all the theory works. You can learn how all the technical parts work. You can learn how to get a good shot, focus it properly, expose it properly. You cannot learn to make it look right. So sorry. That is a given skill that he cannot learn. Okay. You either have it or you don't. That's exactly right. Look at Ansel Adams. He has taken landscape shots that should be no better than anyone else's, but he's recognized exactly when to take it to get the maximum of shadows and light to play with each other to get a perfect shot. Hundreds of photographers have taken shots from exactly the same point of view. None of these shots speak. You look at the shot of Ansel Adams, it speaks to you. So, yes, it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I take it you have all the light, light uh, screens and, and that to stop direct sunlight. And you would do that anyway, would you? Look, I've got all the gear because <clears throat> that's why a lot of the young photographers don't succeed to their full potential because they simply can't afford the equipment to be able to do good studio photography. You need about 30 grand's worth of camera equipment and probably another 20 grand's worth of auxiliary equipment like lighting, screens, etc. And the young photographers can't afford it. So they do the best they can with the limited resources they have. And a lot of them do a very good job. I have the advantage of having the best camera system in the world. I have the advantage of having the studio space all the auxiliary gear I need. So yes, I can literally say, okay, for this I need a one meter diameter soft light. And yes, I have it. Whereas most young photographers will have to say, oh, fuck, I don't have that kind of thing. What do I do now? And they make do. And a lot of the shots are wonderful, but the best equipment in the world will make you not the best photographer, but gee, it helps. Yeah, I get that, Franz, but I would think that you've just omitted one very major part of that. Uh, you've said about the, your equipment and you've said about the facilities, but the part, the gaping hole I think you've left is You've never mentioned anything about the person holding the camera at the other end of it and the, the knowledge and experience that will go into a photograph. Look, I can't argue with that because it's 100% true. Um, experience will help you with every shot you take because you've been there before. So you already know the pitfalls and what works and what doesn't work. But it's also a matter of seeing nuances that you either have the eye for it or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's true in, in, in all walks of life. Franz, if I could take the, this forward, eh, I'm fascinated with, and I could talk all day on the different things, but... Eh, I'm intrigued to know how your encyclopedic knowledge on whiskey came into it. You, the, to get to get such a knowledge, uh, uh, it, you just don't expect to go to Australia for that, um, <laughs> or, or Switzerland. It, it has always amused me greatly that a Swiss Australian goes to Edinburgh to lecture the Scot on what food to eat with what whiskey to match. I mean, that's always made me smile. And the story is relatively short and simple. Look, anything and everything I do, I do the hundredth degree. Uh, there's nothing I do by halves. I either do it or I don't. So, about 15 years ago, Roberta took me to Scotland for the first time. 
Now, let me say that at that stage, I rarely, if ever, drank whiskey because I thought it was not worth it compared to cognacs or armagnacs. And um, we arrived in Scotland and on our first night in Edinburgh, we went to a whiskey bar and there were hundreds of bottles of single malt. And my question was, what the heck's a single malt? Because I only ever had a blend. I thought actually in those days that Johnny Walker Blue Label was a good drink. I have learned in the meantime that <laughs> it's not. Um, I was and then very nicely educated by the bartender what a single malt is and got to realize the difference between a master blender and a master distiller. And I decided, okay, seeing we're in the land of whiskey, I will start and taste. Now, I have one advantage. I never forget the flavor of a whiskey. Now, my next advantage is I never forget the flavor of a dish. Of a dish. I have this encyclopedic memory where I do not forget flavors, ever. So I spent four weeks with Roberta throughout Scotland and I probably tried 250 different whiskies. And by the 10th, I thought, yeah, that's drinkable. By the 50th, I thought, this is really quite good. By the 100th, I was addicted. And from then on, it was a journey just up and up and up. And then I came back to Australia and I thought, everyone's talking about whiskey and everyone's having their favorite whiskey, but they forget that my favorite whiskey at five o'clock a.m. is not the same as my favorite whiskey at three o'clock p.m. or at 10 o'clock at night. They're different. Of course they are. And then they're going to be different with what I eat. Will I have bacon and eggs with an R bag? No, I won't. So it depends entirely on what time of the day you eat and what time of the day you drink. Now, that started me on a journey of matching food and whiskey. And I was very quickly very successful, again, coming back to the fact that I do not forget tastes. And I do remember there was a big Malt Whiskey Society meeting in Sydney about 15, 16 years ago. And they asked me to present them with one dish of a whiskey matched with food. So I did. And it was such a success that I thought, well, heck, Where's all the rest of the people? Why can't they do what I can do? And I realized, unless you have a perfect memory, you can't do it. Chefs know all about food. They know bugger all about whiskey. Whiskey heads know all about whiskey. They know bugger all about food. I was in that very strange situation where I knew both. And it just went on from there to the extent where the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society does dinners with me at least once a year to the extent where I was invited to Edinburgh and Glasgow to have whiskey and food matching dinners and lecture to the community there. So I now am one of the top 
whiskey and food matching people in the world. And I'm a, frankly a bit baffled why, but I suppose it comes back to the fact that I do remember flavors. Um, um, uh, how do you, where do you start if you're matching? Do you start with the food or start with the whiskey? Most people will start with the whiskey and match food or they start with the food and match whiskey. I don't think there is a majority. It depends on who it is. If it's a chef, he will have the food and he will then try and match the whiskey. If it's a whiskey head, he will select the whiskey and then try to match the food. Both of which are, by the way, pretty unsuccessful. What you need to do is you get the whiskies, you taste them. You then think of specific ingredients, cooking methods, seasoning that would work with this. Write them down. And then you do that for all the different courses that you are meant to present on that dinner. You then go back and you arrange them by alcoholic strength. You will not start with a 62% ABV whiskey and start with a 40 and stop with a 40%. It's got to be both an acceleration of ABV and an acceleration of food. So you need to be very careful that you start the alcohol level weakest whiskey in the lineup. And then you probably have about three or four different flavor profiles and you check what is the chef's strength? Where is he good at? What can he cook best? And then you select one of the dishes that A, works with the chef's strength, B, works with the whiskey, and you work yourself through the whole menu. And once you have the lot locked in, you then trial it. You then get the chef to cook the dishes, you bring the whiskies, you try them, and in 99.9% .9 of the cases, I'm right, and you can let it go as it is. Occasionally, it happens that I have to make an amend. Um, <clears throat> one of the big problems is working with chefs. All the good chefs will do exactly what they're told. All the young chefs will say, oh, well, we can, we can put a little coriander as a garnish here, or we can put some lemon rind on here, and it totally stuffs up the match. So you need to try it to make sure that the chef hasn't taken liberties in what you've selected as a match in the first place. That's the secret to it. Yeah. It's, uh, w would you... Yeah, yeah. And would, when you're matching it, are you going by... Are you just a lake for lake, or are you taking contrasts? You do three different kinds. You do a match that based on like for like. You do a match that is like for contrast. And then you do a match that I cannot determine any other way than to say je ne sais quoi. It's a match that is so left center that nobody would ever expect it and it works. They're very rare, but when they happen, they tend to be the best matches of all. 
Yeah, I mean, I always feel that it's so much more difficult than wine matching because you could just simply say, well, if it's fish, white wine, a dry white wine, if it's meat, a red wine, and you could clear parameters to go on, but uh, and I know I know your <clears throat> uh, how it works. We, we with whiskey, please remember. I you probably don't remember, but I asked you once myself. We had a group of French people come in, a big party come into the restaurant, and they came back to me after I gave them the wine list and the and what the idea of the food menu and they came back to me saying we want to being in Scotland we want to have a whiskey with our dessert and oh my goodness I have to admit that I was stumped and it's yourself I contacted and you told me to it was I can't remember the exact name, but a chocolate pudding, and you advised me to get an Ard Beg, one of the Ard Beg range. From memory, and, pardon. From memory, it was an Ard Beg Yeah, that's exactly yeah, and uh, I have to say that they <clears throat> were bowled over and couldn't get over who good it was and how well a match it was and I have to say, I, I soaked up the credit <laughs> look um, wine matches are easier from the point of view that um, as you said you have certain standards even though you can elaborate them um, I have successfully had a match of a Shiraz with chocolate it can be done it's less obvious, but the interesting thing is try and match a wine with artichokes. Try and match a wine with something really sweet. Try and match a wine with a high amount of chili. It won't work. Yeah, they say, okay, chocolate, match it with Tokai. Um, they say, okay, take chilies, match it with a sweet wine. And you know what? They match, but only in parentheses. They are not a good match. Whiskey? No problems. Why? Because of the high ABV. You need an ABV of 50 plus to be able to match it to, um, uh, how shall I say, to ingredients like artichokes or chocolate or honey or in other words, things that are so out there that the wine cannot cope, whiskey can, rather easily so, actually. I know that uh, when I've been in, a, in a Sydney, seen Anthony, and he invited me along to one of your, the, the Malt Whiskey Society tastings, and I was absolutely bowled over how each time you would all try something, and everybody be everybody would be giving the the notes that they are picking up and tasting, 
and it would it it would begin through the whole history of of the actual malt they were drinking. Either was staggering. Yeah, look, I think it's a very interesting um, point, and I think it is imperative that you do take part in tastings like the Scotch Malt Society, um, like the Gillies Club which is, by the way, the oldest single malt club in the world, even though it's starting in Wollongong in Australia. And they hold regular dinners, and it's a total and utter fun to hear everyone else's <clears throat> And quite often you learn something, and you certainly learn to not drink certain whiskies. Okay. We have a saying in Scotland, there is hundreds and hundreds of different whiskies, some better than others, but no bad ones. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I have come to the realisation that there are certain whiskies that I just do not want to drink. Okay, yeah. Not worth, yeah. Not worth the alcohol quota. Yeah. Um, I often felt uh, with the captain's galley when I was cooking seafood that I uh, would you would you would you go with this and say I was on the right tracks I mean the old Pulteney who have the distillery and their distillery in Wick and they called the, they call it the maritime malt and and uh, when you think you go back to the history of where Wick with a the old herring days and it was the biggest herring port in the world eh, pre-war and and that and I just feel they have all that cultures and history in it and I was always comfortable serving uh, old Pulteney with a with seafood. It's a very good whiskey. Um, it's one of the few distilleries that has stayed true to what they started with. And they don't go and experiment with too many modern things. They are what they are and they're dependable and you know exactly what you'll get. So it's not <clears throat> it's nothing wrong with you serving old Pulteney at any one stage. It just depends which one with what dish. Yeah, and and would you say going through the old Pulteney range, you would still have different ones for different dishes? Oh, absolutely. You, there's no such thing as one whiskey that will go with every dish. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really, that's really. Really, really, and really interesting subject. My goodness, how where's where's the room for all this knowledge and <laughs> experience? Well, you know, if I feel like I'm losing some of the experiences. I just have another gram. You probably feel you you maybe feel you're losing them, but I, I bet you if. If you're called, if there, if one of them is called on, it's maybe sitting upstairs, or it just comes into play again. 
Yeah, look, I always have at least a hundred different whiskies open. So I can, I do have the luxury of saying, okay, it's 5 p.m. I feel like a whiskey. It has to be an aperitif whiskey because I'm going to then cook dinner. So it shouldn't be too heavy, shouldn't be too peaty. Um, what shall I go? And I will select something from my big open range that suits my palate at that moment. And it's important you get that right. Yeah, Franz, your knowledge and experience of traveling the world, you're probably, when I mention this to you, you'll probably get it right away. And But I was recently visiting my younger brother who's in a, he's a deputy head of a private college in Malaysia just over the border from Singapore yeah. and I absolutely was completely bowled over with the food there it's just such a mix of cultures we Indian Indian influences Chinese Malaysia itself it's staggering. We we went to Malacca, and uh, my brother had he obviously had dealt a lot with this old guy, and along we went. And here was um he says, "Here you go, try this." He, well, obviously we were introduced. I was introduced to him, and he knew us from Scotland, and he was asking me about whiskey, and he he actually gave me a whiskey. But after what you said earlier. Uh, one of your comments earlier, you mightn't be too impressed because it's a bottle of Johnny Walker. <laughs> he said, is it good? I just, uh, well, I wasn't going to stand there and say, no, it's not good. So I, I just say, yeah, yeah, it's a nice whiskey. It's okay. But yeah, it's all about hospitality. So you've got you to gotta be um, magnanimous anyway. But look, it's a particularly good part of the world for food. I mean, Singapore is already a melting pot of food. Once you go over the bridge and you're in Malaysia, um, the mindset changes. Malaysians think about lunch while they're having breakfast, and they think about dinner while they're having lunch. So in Malaysia, food is more important than just about anything else in the world. And it shows it shows by the quality of what they're dishing up. Even the poorest family will have a dish that will stun you because it's about food. They live about food. They love food. So, yeah, I, I'm mm. totally with you. Um, not so much with the drinking part because, A, um, drinking of alcohol is not encouraged in Malaysia. And... Um, the knowledge is even less so. So, yeah, you're best off to stick with their tea. Well, yes, and the rice lemon tea was stunning. Uh, but one of the things uh, I, this same guy took out then and offered me, and it turned out I was absolutely bowled over. And I honestly can say, Franz, I've never tasted had flavours like it in my life. It was a fermented rice wine 52 percent proof and 30 years old 
Yeah, it's a shoujo, yeah. Uh, they started this in Japan, and they have them all over the, the um, East Asia um, world, and some of them can actually be very good. It, it gives me the same, uh, when I say burn, I don't mean it in a negative way, but it gives me the same burn as some malt whiskies. Sure. Look, as soon as you go from 50% up, the world changes. It, it's a very different drinking experience. And I do realize why a lot of whiskey producers will um, water their whiskey down to 40% because they make a lot more money, but they lose a lot more in taste than what they win in money. So... A whiskey to me should never be below about 46% and can quite happily go up into the 70s, which um, Tim Duckett proven here in Australia with his hardwood range that we have whiskies in the high 60s to low 70s and they are not feeling hot. They're just beautiful. So it's all subjective. Yeah, yeah. Franz, if I could move on and ask you about your, uh, what is equally successful as all your other projects, is your blog and Instagram. And uh, today is Brecky. Why, what, why? Oh, look, why I can't really answer, I suppose it's just because I don't eat lunch. And I always have time to make myself a decent breakfast. And I thought that breakfasts were neglected. You know, wheat bakes is not breakfast. Cereal is not breakfast. A bowl of food is not breakfast. All you have to do is travel the world to figure out that no one in their right mind eats cereal for breakfast. So there has to be other things. So I started um, posting a breakfast every day and I have now posted a breakfast every day for six years and I've never repeated one. Wow. So that makes me think and it makes me come up with something new and it keeps me entertained. That's for the same reason I never, ever re um, repeat a perfect whiskey and food match. Never. Because I get bored. I'm not interested in repeating something that's that worked. So every single match I ever make has to be new. Same with breakfast. Every single breakfast has to be new. That must make it a bit more difficult. <laughs> no, it Maybe. just stimulates the mind, that's all. And uh, But it's from so many different cultures and so many different countries, which you mention in, in the... Well, the advantage of having travelled such a lot, being a travel photographer and a photojournalist, I have had breakfast in every place you can imagine, and it all gives you ideas. So when you put something together, you know, it may take, okay, I have a little bit of turkey today or 
um, I use something from the north of Canada or whatever. You you get inspirations from different parts of the world you visited. Yeah, I've noticed that myself, although I'm not going to profess to have been visiting as many countries and cultures as you have, but obviously with my fishing industry hat on, I've been in pretty much most of the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. And one of the things that, when we talk about food, Franz, one of the things that absolutely sticks out in my mind, and I don't think I'll ever forget it, and it happened about 30 years ago. I was in this, I was in the Faroe Islands visiting a really close friend of mine, and he had his grandchildren uh, in, in the house at the time. And they were... The, the Scandinavians are always really keen on... I've, I've seen some boats I've had in landing in Scrabster sail back with over a hundred tins of Quality Street or Macintosh uh, toffees and all that. And when the children were in the house, I'm sitting there, I can still picture myself sitting there absolutely gobsmacked. The, 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 the mother came through from the kitchen with plates and there was salted dried fish, chunks of salted dried fish on one and Macintosh toffees and Quality Street in the other. And the children chose the dried fish. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. By the way, in the Faroe Islands, which is a place I particularly love, um, two dishes out, and one obviously whale, because it is such a fabulous piece of food. It may be um, politically incorrect these days to talk about it, but... I really loved it. There is no doubt about it. And um, the other thing is the fact that they make so much with so little. I mean, yes, they have seafood, of course, um, but they do such a lot with it. But the one thing that stood out to me is their air-dried lamb, which you can't do anywhere else in the world because everywhere else either rots or it gets fungus or God knows what. In the pharaohs, the um, atmosphere, the winds and everything, humidity are perfect that if you could hang a leg of lamb, let it cure itself by the wind and you shave it like prosciutto and eat it, and it is so bloody good. You know, every pretty much every house in the Faroe Islands in the garden, they have a drying shed. Yeah. And they, they, over the course of the year, that that fish, that uh, sheep, uh, lambs or sheep, whatever, are they're getting the hill, so they're getting they're in the mountains, they're in the pastures, and yeah. they're on the beach, and they're on the beach, so they're getting over the course of the year. There's there's seaweed, there's pasture grass, and and heather and stuff from the uh, and that goes a long way. Yeah. 
the the feeling up there is, and the Icelanders reckon the best lamb in the world is Greenland. Yeah. And Icelandic and Faroe are close second. Yeah, I, I can't speak for Greenland, but I do find that the Faroe Island is absolutely superb. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if I could take it forward, Franz, you've I've noticed in your different blogs and uh, comments and various uh, social media and different places and talking to you, you have a close connection with Iran. I do, yeah. Um, I went to Iran the very first time in 1967 when I was commissioned by the Shah to come and photograph Faradiba. So I flew over there, got met at the airport, took the photograph, had to surrender the film, was shuffled back on an airplane and goodbye. So I saw absolutely nothing the little bit I saw was enough to tell me I really wanted to see Iran. So I went back with Persian friends of ours and enjoyed three weeks of absolute bliss in Iran. It's such a beautiful country. You have every single um, climate zone of the world in there. You have high mountains with snow and ice, you have deserts, you have, you'll name it, tropical forests. You have everything you want. You got water on the top and on the bottom, from the warm waters of the Persian Gulf at the bottom to the top where you, of course, have sturgeons and caviar. And the country is just unbelievable. I feel so much in love of it. I've been back another three times and I, one thing we haven't talked about is I'm also a musician. I spend a large part of my very young life playing in bands to support myself to um, be able to go to uni because me and my parents didn't get on and I moved out. So I then went ahead and I always played music in Australia and I convinced the guys I play with that I wanted to record two Persian songs in Farsi, which I did, and um, they had an absolutely huge success in Iran. Um, we're having over 120,000 YouTube reviews and views on each one of them, which is unheard of for a non-Iranian band. So that was a lot of fun as well. And I'm just waiting for this government to fall so I can go back because I've been so outspoken against all the cruelties and um, the attempt of the women to overthrow the local government, which is genius. So I hope they succeed because I cannot go back until they succeed. Yeah, that's quite frightening, really. Well, not really. I'm sort of safe in Australia. It's too far away from anywhere. But um, 
they deserve to succeed. They've had such a rough time and the inflation is ridiculous. We, we know we're not talking 10 or 15 percent. You know, the inflation doubles in a couple of months. It is ridiculous. And the government does nothing for the people. It only spends money for themselves. Yes, there's a strong man in the Middle East. If you can call Iran the Middle East, it is not actually. It's Asia Minor. But they are a strong country military-wise. And the reason why they can't overthrow the government quickly is simply the fact that all the mercenaries that the government hires are people who are not Iranian and they're quite happy to shoot the innocent bystander in the street. So until the people can arm themselves, they're not going to go to, not going to succeed, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unfortunate almost like that whole area of the world it's terrible how the people are kept down so corrupt as well you know what the best thing is about Iran the meat of the sturgeon fish I know everywhere else in the world it just gets put into cat food in Iran they serve it and it is the best fish I have ever eaten is that right? Yeah. When you say when you say that about the best the best thing in Iran, uh, I've often been asked uh, in when I'm in had the restaurant in Scrabster and maybe people going over on the ferry, uh, and they would ask about maybe visitors, tourists going for the first time, and they would ask me about the Orkney Islands. And but I it just you've just reminded me it just jogged my memory when you said that about and I my standard answer to anybody had asked me about the Orkney Islands was do you know the best part of the Orkney Islands the people yes and yes. I think that's what you I think that's what you're saying about Iran and I was incredibly surprised that you could actually see Orkney from where your restaurant was. Yeah. On a good day, you can see it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be, it has to be a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With our weather. <laughs> but we were lucky one day and we did see it, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Franz, when we come, Closing up, a couple of questions we ask each person. Uh, I, th I think you've already mentioned it as your most memorable meal. It is here by uh, such a long march, and it's not funny. Yeah. Go to Innis here in Wales, enjoy it. There is no other way around it. Yeah. Okay. That's certainly you've certainly put it on my to-do list. Uh, the other the other question. You're if you're you're at home. Your favorite your favorite food. If you're knocking up something for yourself. If I can only name one dish, uh, it would have to be a good old-fashioned Swiss rösti. So, 
you, you um, grate raw potatoes, you put them in a towel and you squeeze the crap out of it for over about three hours until there's no water left in the raw potatoes. Then you put lots of butter in the pan and you put the grated potatoes in, you season it with salt and nutmeg and cook it halfway through with a lid on, take the lid off, flip it, and then cook it on high heat to crisp the other side, flip it again and serve it. And that to me is the best dish ever. And would you eat it as that or would you put something on top of it or use it as a base for something? Look, I'd be quite happy to eat it as, as it is, but you quite often have it with either um, veal sausages or you may have it just with a couple of fried eggs or you may have it with what's called four essen which is uh, in french is blanquette de veau which is basically uh, veal sliced very finely in a cream sauce and i tend to to add um uh, slivered almonds to it to give it a little bit of texture that sounds sounds delicious Franz, I was just something in my mind. I was just going to go back. Uh, you mentioned I uh, when you were talking about the Faroe Islands. Yeah. I I got very close connections there. Lots of very good friends. I did a lot of business there, and I love the place and the people. But your comment about politically correct, as far as the whale is concerned. I don't, it's, people are so, uh, the NGOs and that distort the truth so much. Of course. And the, the people who are supposedly saving the planet, uh, as, and they, you know, with the culture and the way the, the, the Faroese, yes, they kill the pilot whale, but you know, the it's shared amongst communities. There's not one gram of pilot whale meat sold. Of course. For, and whether you're an old age pensioner in the community or or a, ch a child, you get your share. Absolutely. Look, it's, I'm only saying it's politically incorrect in Australia because it's like horse. I mean, I grew up with a horse butcher right next to my dad's restaurant, and I have absolutely no hesitation eating horse. I actually love it. It's a nice, sweet meat. But you can't tell that to anyone in Australia. Um, it's just not done. So the same goes for whale, because of the Japanese and their reasonably relentless hunting of the whales, um, that whole thing has become so political that you just can't say, oh, I've eaten well. You can't. So it's it's very country-specific. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much the case. But it's it's absolutely shocking how they target the Faroe Islands, that such lovely people, and they're much more sustainable with their way of life than anything else in the Western world. And but look, the Faroese don't do themselves a favour by being really aloof. Yes, I understand that once their friends 
They're the best friends he could ever ask for, but they are aloof and it takes a while to get to know them. And that doesn't help when an outsider comes into Pharaoh and interviews them. They really don't want to know. And I'm with them. Yeah, yeah, and obviously they're weary as well of people, you know, what's what's their motive and that. But I don't know whether it's an island culture or or what, but you rightly say that about the Faroe Islands. I feel the same about the Orkney Islands, the Shetland Islands. When, you, when you'd go past that barriers and get to know the people, you have a friend for life. Do you know what, what he's saying is interesting because you're basically saying that all the isolated islands have their own culture, right? And they are wary of people from outside. The same thing happens in Switzerland. A country surrounded by really high mountains and the people are just as wary of foreigners as they are in the pharaohs. Okay, both countries have a lot of tourists, and in, one thing I love about the Faroe at the Swiss, they both hate the tourists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I think that goes... I think there's a bit of that in the North Highlands of Scotland now. Probably, yeah. Because we the, we the, we created this NC five hundred, which is a road going around yeah, yeah. the no, north coast, yeah. Yeah. and the uh, and the local North Highlanders call it the biggest camper van park car park, uh, park in in the world. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. I think we have to wrap it up. Um, yeah. Well, so, thank you so much, Franz. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation. And, and, and I'll hope you down under soon, my friend. Thank you for listening to Seafood Matters Podcast. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. You can join me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast or get in touch with me through my website, www.seafoodmatterspodcast.com